I'm Carlton Owen, immediate past president and CEO of the U.S. Endowment for Forestry and Communities and a proud supporter of Keeping Forest. Keeping Forest is the producer of this podcast called How the River Flows. Keeping Forest is built on a powerful and simple idea to ensure that our region's forests have a future. We're working hard to conserve the 245 million acres of existing forests by supporting private landowners, shedding light on why this land matters, and showing what you can do to help. Every episode of How the River Flows will take a close look at the relationship between healthy forests and clean drinking water. Our experts will share their best ideas along with specific examples about conserving local forests to ensure a lasting, clean supply of drinking water to meet local needs. Each time, we'll bring you a new take on how landowners can be compensated for the tremendous environmental value that their working forests provide to everyone. You'll learn how these innovations are financed, managed, and even how your local community can join the effort in protecting our precious southern forests and the many benefits, including clean water, that they provide. So sit back and enjoy this episode of How the River Flows. Thanks, Carlton. Hi, I'm Leslie Bobby of the Southern Regional Extension Forestry. In this episode of How the River Flows, we're traveling to Texas to explore taxes and bonds. We'll learn how communities around San Antonio are using taxes and those around Austin are using bonds to ensure they have clean water for generations to come. My guests are Philip Covington, Frank Davis, and Commissioner Lon Shell. Philip Covington is the Special Projects Manager for the City of San Antonio's Edwards Aquifer Protection Program. He is responsible for the purchase of properties and conservation easements over the recharge and contributing zones of the Edwards Aquifer, as well as for the annual monitoring of nearly 100 conservation easements. Frank Davis is the Chief Conservation Officer at Hill Country Conservancy and manager and owner of a small ranch in Mason County, Texas. He works closely with rural landowners and other nonprofit and public partners to finance and implement conservation projects, benefiting water, wildlife, and sustainable agricultural production. Lon Shell is a Hayes County Commissioner representing Western San Marcos in the Wimberley Valley. As a commissioner, Lon oversees county policy, departmental budgets, and sets tax rates. Commissioner Shell, Frank, and Philip, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Leslie. Glad to be here. Oh, thanks for having us. Great to be here. So I just want to get started with a few questions just to situate what area we're talking about. So Commissioner Shell, would you tell me a little bit about Hayes County, Texas? Yeah, sure. I'll give that a shot. So Hayes County is, is obviously located on the uh, corridor between uh, Travis counties and uh, Bear County. So we just have Comal County to our south. One of the fastest growing areas in the country. We were the fa- fastest growing county for several years of, of a decent size. And I think we're still in the top five in the country. So tremendous amount of growth, great location with the hill country, rivers, creeks, obviously benefit from the opportunities that the large cities uh, provide us, but then also have some more rural settings here in the county. So very diverse county from the, the corridor, the 35 International Corridor out west when you get to uh, the Wembley Valley and out to the Driftwood and Drippy Springs area. So a lot of diversity, beautiful areas and uh, great people. And Frank, what's your perspective? I'll add to that and just say that, that Hayes County is just really kind of a a breath of fresh air, so to speak, perhaps literally, when you leave some of these more populated areas like Austin and come into Hayes County, you get a sense of what the Texas Hill Country used to be. 
And so even in the face of all of that population growth, thanks to leaders like Commissioner Shell, we've seen that the county has really maintained a lot of that character of natural areas and hills and flowing creeks and springs and streams and really just a sense of a legacy uh, kind of being created there within the county that, that I think a lot of us recognize. And would you describe Hayes County as um, bedroom county of Austin or is it a mixture just in relation to Austin? I think it's a bit of a mixture. Probably used to be more just because of the jobs in Hayes County. But with that growth has come a lot of development, especially along the corridor. So there are more folks that, uh, you know, that are working and living in Hayes County, though, obviously, we still have a significant number that uh, commute either to Austin or even south to San Antonio. Some of our fastest growing cities, or uh, which I think is probably the fastest growing area, is Dripping Springs, which is on the 290 corridor. Uh, you'll find that uh, many of those that live in that area do uh, do work in Austin, and it, it's fairly close and is, is part of one of the drivers for that tremendous growth in that area. But uh, there are more job opportunities along the corridor in Hayes County, so we're starting to see uh, more people that do work and live here. So I would say it's probably pretty good balance right now. And you both uh, mentioned the Texas Hill Country, and uh, I know that Frank is uh, the Chief Conservation Officer at the Hill Country Conservancy. What, how would you describe Texas Hill Country for people who um, are not from that region? Sure. Well, the, the Texas Hill Country is really a colloquial term. It's not a term that describes a particular geography. In other words, there's not a consensus on exactly where it starts and where it ends. And a lot of us like to claim the Hill Country as our own, but it generally speaking, this covers areas sort of west of I-35 here in central Texas. And looking west from that corridor, you can see where the hills and the valleys really pick up along the Balcones Escarpment. So that's this sort of geographic location where there's a massive topography change right there. And then looking west from that area, the history of the hill country has been one of ranching and in many cases very intensive uh, grazing. So it's eroded hilltops, lots of uh, scrubby lands, lots of mature forests made of cedar and oak, vast grasslands through much of this. And then I think it's one of the hot spots of uh, biological diversity throughout the country as well. A lot of this area stretches through about, depending on who's counting, uh, 17 or 18 counties here in central Texas, making up about, I think it's about 14 million acres in total. So uh, a rather large area. And just to follow up on that, is there anything that either of you would say is particularly evocative of the hill country or maybe that uh, kind of stands out for you just to characterize it for the rest of the country? This could be personal or um, <laughs> or what you think professionally. I'll, I'll build on that for a moment. So absolutely. It's really like no place on earth to use a cliche. I mean, it's unpredictable what you can find in the hill country. It is so exceptionally diverse that there are little pockets of wonder everywhere that you can go. And it's apparent even driving down a roadside, uh, when we drive through some of these county roads in Hayes County, for instance, we're talking about rolling hills and sharp bluffs and clean, clear-flowing streams and creeks wildflowers for as far as the eye can see during the right part of the year. But also in addition to that, behind those gates, uh, when you enter into some of our local parks and state parks, as well as some private lands, it's not uncommon to find spring-fed swimming holes that are clear 6, 10, 15 feet down, limestone ledges with grottos with water flowing over them. It's really kind of wondrous because this is such a dry region. We are really plagued by spells of drought mixed with dramatic floods and thunderstorms. 
And in the midst of all that, you find all these natural wonders. So it really gives a sense of why people have been coming here for thousands and thousands of years, but also why Europeans chose to settle here as well. And I would just to expand on uh, what Frank said, focusing on the water side, that that to me is is something that sets it apart. Like Frank said, it's such a dry area and in times has some severe droughts that you still find these beautiful spring-fed creeks and rivers. We have some amazing ones just in our, you know, in our area and in Hayes County. And I grew up here and lived here most of my life, except for going off to college and living in a couple other places before I moved back. And I know everybody, their home is always special and they feel more comfortable there because it's where they it's where they grew up or spent a lot of time. But I always have thought the Hill Country was just a little bit more than that. And not to, to say there's not some other great areas in the state and of course, all over this country, but it is a very unique place and it has some really, some of the most amazing people that you'll find as well. So I always think of it as just, not just my home, but uh, the place that I would want, want it to be my home. That sounds like an amazing place. And thanks for describing it in such detail. It helps really capture capture a good picture for in my mind outside of just uh watching Westerns. (laughs) So I just want to go dive in a little bit to um, some of the work that you've done together. I know that collectively you've worked together on the Hill Country Alliance. And in 2015, the Hill Country Alliance requested some help from the Texas School of Architecture to develop a community and regional plan for the Texas Hill Country. Can you tell me a little bit about what the impetus was for uh, reaching out to the uh, School of Architecture to discuss this plan and how that started or who reached out to them first. Frank, let's hear from you first. I think credit for this idea goes to several folks. I'll fail to mention, certainly, but the Hill Country Alliance is a regional nonprofit that's very much focused on collaboration among conservation nonprofits and as well as working with local agencies. They and the Wimberley Valley Watershed Association were really critical in kicking this off. And at the time, the UT School of Architecture dean was a gentleman named Fritz Steiner, who was formerly a board president for Hill Country Conservancy. So he was very immersed in land conservation and protection. And he thought of the idea of hosting this studio um, at the School of Architecture, and they invited graduate students from architecture and planning to really come up with some ambitious goals, ostentatious goals for what could be accomplished here in the Hill Country. And I think that an aspect of it that was really compelling is that they weren't really limited by any professional association with a particular organization. None of them were working for any particular agency. So they could really go out on a limb in what they described as might be possible within the whole country. They didn't have those sort of practical or political implications holding them back. And so as a result of that effort, what they did is they essentially pulled in practitioners and experts from throughout the region, as well as from throughout the country to see what's been successful so far. What are the threats facing the Hill Country? How quickly is this area growing? What are the issues that are most daunting? For instance, the lack of land use planning or um, planning authority for counties. That means that generally speaking, development can sprawl across the landscape without a lot of checks on it. Looking at those types of issues and learning about those from these practitioners, they came up with some pretty wild plans, but it got a lot of us really excited and it convened some important conversations. Out of that was born the Texas Hill Country Conservation Network. And that's where, to date, over probably 40 different individual organizations are now partnering on a regular basis, meeting on a regular basis to talk through collaborative strategies and actually agreeing on what it is that we're going to accomplish together to really scale up the pace of conservation and to develop new funding sources 
to build on existing funding sources for conservation and really to develop a cohesive collaborative vision for the Hill Country and what it could become in the future. Um, anything to add, Commissioner Shell? Yes. You know, I think Frank mentioned a few aspects, you know, of the plan and you know, I've gone through it uh, multiple times myself and, and focused on several areas that the plan brings up. And then from our role at the county, we've dived into a few of those areas. And I'll, I'll touch on just a few that Frank mentioned some just, you know, general land conservation strategies for land conservation and how you fund land conservation is obviously very important to us. That's something that we focus on when we look through the plan. It does talk about uh, groundwater laws in Texas and our groundwater conservation districts and the role they play, how they're structured and how they're funded. There is a ex extreme importance in the protection of our groundwater. And so I think that was some very good recommendations that came out of that plan regarding groundwater. Also, uh, the, the need for scientific data to make uh, decisions, especially when we're looking at groundwater management. There's a lot of work that needs to be done in the Hill Country area. Our aquifers uh, recharge differently than many across uh, the state in this country, and they're very unique and they require uh, very unique ways of guarding them. And also, the Frank mentioned development in the unincorporated areas of Texas and the Hill Country is mainly unincorporated once you get get outside of the uh, west of the cor the I-35 corridor. And he mentioned that counties really don't have land use authority, very limited land use authority in some respects, but practically none. For the most part, counties are in charge of the development process, which follows uh, state rules and uh, wastewater. So making sure that on-site sewage facilities are designed and functioning properly. Besides that, there's very few authorities that the counties have. So uh, we have had to use some unique strategies to try to find ways to to influence development in a positive way to make sure that we can maintain a sustainable hill country. It is a challenge in Texas for sure. So those are a few things that the plan calls out. There's still a lot of more work to be done, but it's definitely a very good start. That's great. Are, are there any other specific recommendations that came out in terms of land use or water that were, um, I guess, more precise or that you'd like to mention? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, the land use issue is, has been brought up several different times before the legislature had a kind of, I would say it's probably been close to 10 years the last time. I think it had some decent momentum. There's, you know, the state of Texas is likes consistency. I see that as a challenge when the state of Texas is so large and uh, diverse. Rules and regulations that work in the Piney Woods of East Texas uh, are going to be different than ones that work in the Hill Country or out near El Paso or up in the Panhandle or down on the coast or the valley. So, um, it is hard to maintain that consistency. I understand the challenges associated with that, with making laws that are reasonable and fair and being able to apply them uh, uniformly. But that is a very difficult uh, task, especially when you look at the uniqueness of the Hill Country. And we look at how the Hill Country is developing outside of that, that populated corridor area. It's all on groundwater and local groundwater. It's just not going to last forever. And so how we treat that is where I think the work needs to be done. And in the plan, it called about it called out issues about the authority of these groundwater conservation districts. And many of them were established uh, uniquely and in different ways and have different authorities. Some have fairly broad range authorities, which we refer to Chapter 36 of our of our state statutes, water code. And some have very limited ones. And, and here in the county, we have multiple groundwater conservation districts, and they're all established differently and have different funding mechanisms and different rules and authorities. And that makes it uh, very challenging to have a uniform management of such a diverse water supply that is so interconnected, not just with different pockets throughout the whole country, but also surface water, which makes it very difficult. So specifically, uh, some of the recommendations regarding groundwater conservation districts, I think, are very valuable, along with how to develop in the whole country. And we've tried to build up on some of those recommendations. So we were recently undertook what we call conservation subdivision planning initiative. And we have a team on board has been working for the last six months or so. And 
about to start our public process on what that looks like, but trying to find ways to incentivize conservation development in the unincorporated areas that do not rely solely on groundwater, that use rainwater and that are built in a way to uh, hopefully conserve the goal would be 50% or more of the land in which that subdivision occurs. So working on incentives, uh, some of those ideas are brought up uh, in the plan and we're trying to build on those uh, specifically. A plan that hopefully will result in a modification of Hayes County development rules and allow for those incentives to get some more conservation-minded development. It's very complex. It is. And you can see why I'm a huge fan of, of Commissioner Shell. He's been uh, such a wonderful leader in all of this and helping to steer the, the county in the right direction and to guide all of our various partners towards these efforts. It's worth making note of the sort of passing of the torch to the Texas Hill Country Conservation Network. So in that particular study, the students put this forward, the class put this forward, and then it was necessary for somebody to pick it up and really run with it. And um, thankfully, there were a lot of folks that were very keen on doing that. So when the Texas Hill Country Conservation Network was formed, they used this as a blueprint of sorts to figure out what to do next. And then we've since built on that over the last few years. We now have a strategic plan that has broad consensus among network partners that really looks at ambitious goals relating to investment in watershed and habitat protection. And as, as Commissioner Shell mentioned, it also includes important aspects of dealing with groundwater management issues. You can hear how incredibly complex and problematic those are here in Texas. In fact, groundwater and surface water are treated under different laws in Texas. So we don't only face the challenge of a lack of local land use planning, but we also treat a single resource as, a, as if it were two separate resources. So there's some significant challenges there. We're also working collectively to work on bond programs like this one that we've, we're doing now with Hayes County. So that was a a big network effort with a lot of partners participating. We're looking at new sources of funding and enhancing existing sources of funding. Some examples of new sources of funding would include looking at things like source water protection programs, where we tie the use of drinking water to the financing of protecting a watershed. And so uh, we're working on feasibility for that right now, working with numerous groundwater conservation districts and water suppliers and other agencies to see what may be possible there um, to develop a sustainable source of financing. In other words, if somebody turns on their tap and uses that water resource, well, they're paying for its protection and we can rely on that financing into the future because it's extremely unlikely folks are going to stop taking showers and drinking water and washing their dishes. In addition to all that, the network has been awarded a grant through the Natural Resources Conservation Service that allows us to bring partners together, about 20 different groups that work with private landowners on land stewardship and permanent protection. And that's allowed us to develop a consensus on best practices as well. There's a lot of uh, questions, a lot of even some controversy over precisely the best way to manage this land for ecosystem and watershed health. And so we're working on reconciling some of those questions through this particular program. Furthermore, it's garnered some national attention from funders that really aren't participating in some of these local conservation efforts. The Water of Funder Initiative is a, a really notable one, and they have numerous big funders from throughout the country that are participating. And we're one of five programs, I think six now actually, that have been awarded grant match from, from the Water Funder Initiative that allows us to bring in to date about a million point two in, in match dollars. And all of that allows us to really equip our local partners to do these kind of programs. 
So maybe I'll just jump in a little bit too and ask either of you to describe the bonds and um, how those started. And we'll kind of cover that and then we'll come back to challenges and relationships if that works for everyone. I could just a brief uh, history on on the Hayes County bond program and where we are now. Excellent. Commissioner Shell. Yeah, the first one I think was about 20 years ago. It was fairly small. The more recent until uh, the one that our voters just approved was in 2007. It was $30 million that was approved for parks and open space. And I believe we got, you know, out of that $30 million, more than $60 million worth of projects. A, a big goal of all our programs is to leverage our local dollars as much as possible. And that's where the partners that Frank mentioned, the Hill Country Alliance and others have really helped us out is finding those ways to leverage our local dollars to get more conservation and, and recreation opportunities for our citizens. And then that was obviously quite some time ago in 2007. You can imagine the growth of this county. We mentioned how fast growing we are. That's happened just since 2007. It's very tremendous. And so about a year ago, the county started seriously thinking about next steps for parks and open space and decided to reconvene a commission that we previously had, which we call our previously was Parks and Open Space Advisory Board, now called Parks and Open Space Advisory Commission, where court members of our commissioner's court, which are five members, a county judge and four county commissioners, uh, put citizens on a committee to study uh, a master plan that was created in 2012 to update that master plan for parks and open space. And then to come up for ways in which we could uh, continue to do some of those projects. And uh, they looked at different projects around the county uh, that had been done, some that uh, people were working on, and made recommendations to our commissioner's court on how to move forward. And the court did uh, decide to move forward with that and put that on what was the uh, November 2020 election. One of the reasons that was chosen, we were in the middle of a pandemic and there were a lot of discussions about financial security and the future of our economic uh, growth in the area and whether or not we should undertake a bond, which turned out to be a $75 million bond program. We thought the 2020 election was a very important one for something like that because we knew we would have extremely high turnout across all of our communities in this county. And I've always been one that says if you're going to, if voters are going to approve on something that's potentially going to put uh, the county in further debt, you want as many of them to participate as possible so you don't have a, a small number of folks making those, those, which can be very large decisions. We were very fortunate, obviously, to have that high turnout, and we saw that bond pass by 70%. So I think you're seeing all of the work that's been done over these years, a lot of the work that Frank has mentioned to the public, it understands the importance of open space and conservation. They live in the Hill Country uh, for a reason, uh, because they love it here and they want to see it preserved. They wanted to see it's maintained, see, see it's, that it's able to maintain its rural character and maintain those natural resources that we all enjoy so much, like our rivers and creeks and springs. And so we really saw a great turnout, great participation with that and great support. And we're sort of in the process now of, of developing that actual program. We have lists of projects that have come through that commission that are now in the program. And we're going to, to work a little bit more on that over the next few months to finalize the, the program. And then uh, we'll start issuing debt when appropriate for, the, for these projects and making sure that we do take uh, into concerns any economic conditions, especially understanding the pandemic and what that's done to, to many of those that we serve. So very excited about it. I think it's going to take this county to another level of conservation. There's definitely going to be some uh, smaller type recreation of parks, more traditional parks in the program, but there's going to be um, a lot that have to do uh, with conservation. And uh, when we, you know, when we explain to the public what our intents are 
I always like to point out all of the different public values to land conservation. One of the the easiest one is, is just that preservation of, of that rural character. And, and the, the reason we all live here is to protect those views and those natural resources. But there's so many others that come out of it. Flooding, Frank mentioned issue, is a huge, huge problem for this area. Flood mitigation and improved floodplain management can come out of land conservation. We talked about groundwater, water supplies, land conservation can protect our water quantity as well as its quality. We talk about habitat preservation. The county has a habitat conservation plan, which is approved by U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Conservation allows us to protect some of the habitat for endangered species. And then just public access, enjoyment, recreation, and education. So I always like to list what I consider to be those really uh, large public values to something like this. In other words, why would someone want uh, to pay for this? Why would someone want to invest in this as the public? And I think there's many reasons uh, for land conservation. I think it benefits us all. And uh, we're, we're really excited to get going on this bond program. We've got a, a lot of work still to do, but we're getting very close to putting some really amazing projects together. That sounds great. Yeah, it's that list of benefits that, that was just, just described it was spot on. And I think that folks understand that all of this is under threat in Hayes County and many parts of the Texas Hill Country. And the threat is most pronounced in those areas close to I-35 because of the development that's spreading outwards from places like Austin and San Antonio. And so as that development moves into these areas, what happens is property values start going up as more and more homes are put in place and new suburban subdivisions are, are put in place. And so folks that have been ranching in some cases for generations are seeing how really the the landscape around them is changing rapidly. In some cases, they're seeing their own creeks and streams be dried up by local pumping. They're seeing the scenery around them change. They're finding that ranching is not going to cut it anymore for paying the bills. And they're starting to look at other options. And oftentimes, the best option that that folks uh, have in front of them is to subdivide or develop or sell the property in some fashion. And having a program like this is really a solution to all of those challenges that folks face when they're, you know, as rural landowners to say, okay, well, maybe I don't have just this single option that I'm not real excited about. Maybe I can protect it and still be compensated for protecting the resources on my property that we know are, are benefiting not just that property, but everybody regionally. Anytime a property like this is protected and you know, local, somebody has a well locally, they're benefiting because neighboring properties are in good condition and well-managed instead of being developed. Downstream folks benefit because the property is not now producing rapid runoff and flooding after a big rainstorm that a you know, such a problem here in the hill country. So it's it's just essential to tie all this together and say that we have to deal with the threats by providing opportunities and solutions to folks. And the use of, of bond programs like this and initiatives like conservation easements really are a win-win for everybody involved. And I think that's why the county voters supported this so overwhelmingly. I just asked a little bit about the specifics for private landowners. I come from a forestry background in the South, so we talk a lot about all the private forest landowners with their acres of pines. But of course, ranch lands and farmlands are also open space and working lands that are important. And how, what kind of the mechanisms or payments go to these private landowners? Um, you mentioned conservation easements, but I just want to tie, them back, tie it back from the bonds to the landowner, just out of curiosity. 
Yeah, there's there's a few different options that exist through the the bond package. In some cases, landowners are selling the land outright. They may have had their go at it for whatever reason, or perhaps their children or grandchildren aren't really demonstrating a real interest in taking care of the place. And instead of selling it to a developer, they now, in some cases, if the property is located in the right place and and has the right types of features, they would be able to sell it for a county park. And that would allow for some of the recreational opportunities that the commissioner mentioned, and also protect those natural resources on the property at the same time. For others, they don't really want to part ways with the property necessarily. They want to continue managing it, whether that's for the benefit of wildlife or for um, livestock production as a working ranch. And in those cases, a conservation easement is really the most applicable tool and most desirable tool for those landowners. So essentially a conservation easement establishes that there will be certain limits on development. So if we look at a, just make up a property, let's say a 500 acre property, perhaps if they were to subdivide and develop that property, it might turn into 200 tracts of land, each with a home on it. Well, many folks can't bear the thought of that on their family land. And so instead they hold on to it. And if they can sell or perhaps donate a conservation easement, then they'll agree that instead of 200 homes or however many, that perhaps it will be only two homes and two tracts of land. And when they pass it down, each kid, each of their two children can have their own tract of land maybe. Um, in doing that, they've also agreed to limit the, the real estate value of the property. And by limiting that value, they've created the opportunity to be incentivized through a cash payment, through a bond program like this for restricting their land through a conservation easement. That really can be really critical for a lot of folks to hold on to, to their land. It is extremely expensive to own large areas of land that involves maintaining roads, maintaining fences, maintaining you know, various structures on the property, keeping up with property taxes. There's just so much that goes into it. So this provides a way for them to hold on to the land with some sense of financial security in the process. So I'm going to circle over to, um, since we're talking about bonds, this question's for Commissioner Shell. So when you first heard of this idea for bonds, what were your first thoughts about it? Uh, you know, I had been around here for quite some time and was around in 2007. And so that's probably about the first time I really started paying attention to the use of bonds for uh, open space. And I came to the county in 2011. So, you know, since then, even greater focus. But it definitely took me a while to understand some of the things that, that Frank just explained, whether it's fee ownership or easements and the use of these funds. It took me a while to, to really understand conservation in general, but I think it, it comes natural to most of us that are here or from here to understand the importance of it. And the ideas of bonds to fund these type of efforts is really one of the most important tools that we have. Obviously, we have to be very careful with our citizens' dollars and their tax dollars and their debt that they are placed on to fund these. But when we make those type of decisions that it is okay to do, it's really our best our best tool to be able to do this. And like I said, what we're able to do with them is to leverage them and, and in, in most cases, at least double what our taxpayers invest with, uh, with outside dollars. And so I've become definitely more comfortable with the use of them, obviously, in a, in, when they're done correctly and when the time is put in to make sure that it is is financially, economically feasible uh, for the county and its citizens to undertake. 
But once those boxes have been checked, they do provide us with an opportunity to do something that that otherwise we would not be able to do. And going back again to the growth that we're experiencing, land values, land values have doubled in not that much of a time. Prices uh, are continuing to climb. It is getting harder and harder to find properties that are affordable. There is such a demand on development and, and such a high price for those developments that the competition is great. And I felt uh, like my colleagues, I believe, as well this time and and our citizens too, overwhelmingly that you know now was the time that if we didn't take this opportunity, we would lose and not be able to, to conserve some of the areas that we're going to be able to. And it's going to continue to get harder. We know that. We'll have to continue to find ways. Uh, to leverage our dollars and to find other sources. Frank has mentioned some ideas on that. I think there's a lot of work to be done on providing more opportunities for the funding of these conservation projects and all of us working together. We're hoping that we can see this this model grow uh, throughout the Hill Country as as counties and other local jurisdictions are able to, uh, to pay for bond programs, uh, that they use them as well. And we all partner together on uh, some regional projects. Uh, there are some great regional projects that connect uh, the Austin area to San Antonio area. Great Springs Project is one that comes to mind. Uh, so uh, I think that is where we're going to find kind of the next um, generation of conservation is to uh, not try to just look at this as uh, locally, but also uh, regionally and involve our regional partners. And I think bonds will always be one of those mechanisms that uh, provides us with some really good opportunities. And how has being involved in this project changed how you think about natural resources and solutions to environmental problems? Uh, like I said, I've come a long way. Um, you know, I grew up on a, a farm outside of San Marcos. And uh, I think those of us that uh, that do have a more of a rural background probably come to it a little bit easier, maybe not on all of the fronts or even all the levels that I mentioned earlier. But again, just that kind of basic uh, preservation of, of our rural character. Uh, Frank has mentioned kind of the the ranching history of this area and those that settled here. And uh, it's that's obviously extremely important. So from that standpoint, I think, you know, I would I was always on board and understanding just because I I kind of appreciate that uh, that balance, providing that balance, and by maintaining that uh, kind of rural character that we have. But when you get into uh, some of these other issues that I mentioned other the, uh, earlier, these other public values that I see, you know, that's something that is continually evolving uh, with myself and and all of us that uh, that do this type of work is to try to find ways to protect those um, those areas uh, that provide such a great value to the public. And do them in a responsible and well-managed way, and that's something that I'm continuing learning on. Uh, like I said, I'm you know this conservation subdivision program that we've started here in the county is I've learned a great deal in that process. Uh, we're going to have some really good findings and some great tools I think developed, but it's just willing to uh, keep working on this. And as uh, you know, as fast-paced as things are going now, uh, you know we're going to turn around uh, one day, and it's you know it's it's going to be next year, and um, you know I, I, I just don't want us to get behind any further. I remember seeing some data uh, from from our state not too long ago that kind of showed the the growth of Hayes County and looked towards that kind of thirty year to forty year uh, timeline from now. So getting into uh, to twenty fifty, which obviously we think is so long ago, but uh, you know I was in high school in uh, the early nineties, and uh, that's thirty years ago. So um, you know thirty years ago is going to happen, and when we look at what Hayes County looked like uh, back in the nineties and compare it to what it looks like today and then try to predict what it might look like in that 2050 to 2060 timeframe. I've heard numbers of Hayes County uh, will have a population similar to what Travis County did in the 90s. And, you know, when I was growing up in Hayes County in the 70s, 80s and 90s, uh, Travis County was still pretty big to me. Austin was, was for sure big. I know it's a lot bigger now, but to me, that was a huge city to imagine that uh, that Hayes County is going to look like that 
uh, impossible in 30 years, uh, which I hope to still be around for. Um, we better get to work. Um, if not, uh, we're going to lose a lot of what makes uh, Hayes County and this hill country unique and what made all of these people want to live here. We're going to lose that if we're not careful. So I think that's really the importance. That's what I've, I think I've learned more about and focused more on is trying to look forward and realize that, yes, these some of these decisions are hard when you're talking about finances and debt and everything associated with that. But uh, we also have a responsibility to try to uh, to protect this for future generations. Um, and if we if we don't do that now, that that won't happen. Actually, I'll go ahead and ask you this question right now, Commissioner Shell. But what does the term ecosystem services mean to you? Well, I think it could be a, it could be a very broad uh, term. And when you look at some of the ecosystems and how they're connected, that uh, that that Frank mentioned, I you know I like to kind of focus on a few of those. And obviously, water I think is is the key here. And we have you know we have endangered species that that uh, that are here, whether they're uh, the golden cheek warbler or salamanders uh, throughout the hill country in our aquifer systems. But to me, I think that that ecosystem of water, how we use it, uh, what we do with it once we've used it. And what that does to the ecosystem is ex- extremely important. And uh, there's been a lot of efforts there. Uh, some of the some of the issues that we have is the way wastewater is discharged into the rivers of the hill country, and in some rivers and parts of the the state, it, it, it it's different. Like I said, because it's so diverse. When you look at the hill country, our rivers and our aquifers are interconnected, and uh, and we use our aquifers for for drinking water. Like I said, in the majority of the unincorporated areas of of the hill country, and so you think about just that. Um, that ecosystem there and how connected it is and how important it is. And can you imagine if our aquifers not only are depleted, but if they were polluted, um, I think is an extremely important issue. And there has got to be a lot of work done both at our legislature on, on rules associated with that reasonable rules that are associated with that. We understand a lot of these hill country counties and towns are booming uh, just as Hayes County is. And we understand the pressures and the stresses that are placed on those local governments, but uh, the management of those ecosystems is extremely important. And uh, the tools that we're going to need to manage them um, in modern times and into the future are gonna need to uh, change with those times. And um, I think that's gonna be something that we look towards uh, as well as uh, the development of science, uh, something that you know that plan talks about and related to our groundwater conservation districts or more partnerships amongst uh, these borders, knowing that these aquifers don't follow uh, county lines and working with our neighboring partners and other districts to make sure that we have the science that's necessary as undertaking going on currently in our area, the Meadows Center at Texas State University and Southwest Research in San Antonio, what's called Bratwurst, which is a, a study of the interconnectivity of our surface and groundwaters uh, in this area, mainly the Blanco River and the Trinity aquifers. And uh, that is something the county will participate in, has participated in the planning of, and uh, looks forward to drilling down into more data uh, and more science that can then help us all make the right decisions as we do uh, plan for what we know is going to be exceptional growth, uh, you know, for, for, for a long time into the future. And so I think we need, we need as much science as possible to make those decisions, to make the right decisions or do our best to make the right decisions. And we're not going to do that if we don't continue to develop strong science. And that's going to take all of us working together um, to manage all of these ecosystems, again, that don't pay attention to where a county line is or a city limit or or anything else. And so uh, as long as we continue to work together, I think there's good things to come. Great. I'm going to circle back to the to the overall projects. You both have mentioned some of the challenges in these relationships. 
Have there been connections that have been important to implementing this project or developing it that you might not have mentioned yet? Yeah, absolutely. There's, I tend to say over and over again how important it is to have collaboration, and I, I truly do believe in that. It's not just a talking point. Um, the fact of the matter is that there's no single organization or agency that, that, that can get this scale of effort done. We need broad buy-in from a lot of different folks, and so that really starts with a well-educated populace. It's really important that folks understand that these threats are real. In many places like Hayes County, it's self-evident, and so you don't have to do too much persuasion. But there's always other factors pushing back. We have to learn how to communicate effectively to show what the issues are and to bring more people into the fold and more people into participating in conservation. It's also really critical that nonprofits and other partners are aligned in their, in their communication, in their messaging, in their strategy. I think it was evident to the commissioner's court when we started to talk about this bond effort. The first thing that we did is we consulted with with staff and elected officials at the county to make sure that what we might propose makes sense to them. We wanted to make a case, but also we didn't want to do it in opposition to anything that they might want to accomplish for the county. So we, we really aligned with them at the front of this effort. And then we started pulling in more and more nonprofit partners to help to bring things forward. And for instance, um, the commissioner mentioned this Parks and Open Space Advisory Commission that the Commissioner's Court basically put together to look at prospective conservation projects. Well, we, we worked in collaboration as a nonprofit community to bring forth projects to see which ones were most viable, which were going to address needs across the county, which were going to address the multiple needs and, and objectives of this bond. And so what they're not seeing from us, I think, is cutthroat competition. I think that would be extremely unhelpful to a a program like this, they saw that we were aligned in what we were trying to accomplish, and we saw that there was a need for balance among different goals. Um, in addition to all that, Hayes County doesn't want to do the work alone either. So we've brought in the city of Austin as a prospective partner. They have some overlapping objectives. There's a local groundwater supplies the, and local aquifer and, and local creeks and streams that are both within Hayes County, but also benefit the health of Barton Springs, which is really an icon of, of the city of Austin. So that allows us to put two programs together in tandem, and each agency is, is able to leverage their funding with, the, with that partnership. And so having different agencies working together is really a key part of efforts like this as well. Yeah, I don't, it doesn't sound like you could do this alone by any means. And were there any particular challenges that, that you think that the group had to work to overcome or any roadblocks that involved the process to overcome? I mean, besides the obvious ones that it's extremely complex, two forms of water, multiple jurisdictions and everything. I mean, I think everybody worked really well together and had the common goal. There's obviously some always going to be differences amongst opinions and of what people believe is the most important. But uh, you know, for the most part, I was extremely pleased with the uh, the collaborative effort that, that went on and really a consensus on just about everything. So, I mean, I, I think when you put the time into plan something and you have the right people and you have the right help, which like the Hill Country Alliance can provide for us, that those outcomes are much better. We do com we did compare the process we used uh, for this bond program to that which the county did in 2007, which was a little reverse. I think the county decided that they would support this uh, the initiative, and they placed uh, the measure on the ballot, and it was approved. But they did not at that time had not done any really prior work to planning or organizing what that would be, and I think. Uh, we learned from that, and instead we spent, like I said, good a good year trying to plan before we decided that we would even go out for that bond program. And I think 
part of that really helped us develop that consensus amongst all of our partners, whether they're regional or here locally, to understand what we're really trying to do. And so we definitely learned some lessons, but it, it took a lot of hardworking people, mostly volunteers, to put that together. And in the end, everyone worked together extremely well. That sounds great. Sounds like you, um, yeah, all that early work prepared the way for some success. And just along those lines, do you think that the success of this project has created possibilities for further engagement along these lines? And if so, what type of engagement or are there any unexpected outcomes from some of these collaborations and project work? I definitely believe that the momentum is picking up across the hill country in conservation. Frank mentioned the city of Austin, which has some very large investments in portions of our county through their water quality protection program. And, uh, you know, that kind of started things in conservation really in Hayes County at a a larger scale. And that's been some time now. And as the county did that initiative in 2007, and then now the one that was approved in 2020, I think we're starting to see some momentum build across the hill country. And some of our neighbors are starting to pay attention and understand that there is huge support for this. I think there's hesitation, especially for county government, which in uh, Texas is, is is pretty pretty simple for the most part. Consider myself just a redneck that happens to be a county commissioner. And if I can do it, it can't be too complicated. But, uh, you know, a lot of times the focus of county government is roads, very basic tax, setting the tax rate, managing your county departments, things like that. And so there is always a hesitation. How do you fund something like this? How far do you go? Is this the role of county government? And probably 20 years ago, you would have found fewer people that thought this was the role of county government. I, but I do believe we play a role in this. And I think you're starting to see that build across the region as as our constituents make it known that this is important to them. This is why they live here. They want to protect it. They want to enjoy it. They're, they want their children to be able to live here and experience the same quality of life. And so as we continue to hear from the public and what's important to them, and then we see them overwhelmingly support uh, a bond measure by 70%. I mean, that is that is huge. Um, I, you know, I won an election once by 37 votes out of 20,000. You know, uh, usually that's how things go down around here. But when you see 70% of your voter support something like that, it it means that that need is there and it means they, that they want you to do something about it. And, and oftentimes, and unfortunately in these last few years, this country's focused a lot on, you know, on R and D Republican and Democrat issues. And, you know, I like to use Hayes County as an example. I, I consider it a purple county. It always has been for as long as I can remember, at least as long as I've been around. Uh, you know, our commissioner's courts are sometimes majority Republican, sometimes majority Democrat. Elected officials across this county are both, whereas many of the, the our neighboring areas are either one way or the other. And I think Hayes County just proved something that you saw, whether it was Republican or Democrat candidates win their races by, you know, two to four point margins across this county. And then you see a bond initiative passed by 70%. It obviously means that it's not just about that, that everybody across the political spectrum believes that this is extremely important for their own personal lives, for their children's and their families' lives, but for the future of their home. And to me, I take a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of pleasure in, in knowing that it, it, I guess in a way it makes it a lot easier um, when something's 50-50, you know, you're going to upset 50% of the people, which seems to be just about the way it works most of the time. Uh, but when you have something like this, it makes it a lot more fun because um, not only do you see it personally, how important it is, but you understand that that support is out there in your community and with your partners and your regional partners. And so it it, it really makes it something that's fun to do, which, you know, anytime something um, is fun, anytime you can see something uh, work the way that you planned, 
it definitely makes you want to keep doing it. And so I think that momentum is building. I think we're seeing that now and I, I hope to see that continue throughout the whole country. Yeah, there's a, another aspect of this that I want to touch on and that's that when when Hayes County takes the lead on a bond program like this one, a lot of folks, other neighboring counties take notice. So there's certainly the desire that we can use this as a model in some of the neighboring counties. Kamau County to the south is is exploding with growth and has incredible natural resources. The Guadalupe River flows uh, right through the middle of the county and is visited by probably hundreds of thousands of people each year. It's an incredible river. And there's so much more there that's worthy of protection, but there hasn't been a lot of conservation to date. And Commissioner Shell and others have been really wonderful about connecting with neighboring commissioners to indicate what may be possible. And, and they're watching to see, you know, when they see 70% support by the voters across party lines, other counties take notice. And so looking to, to neighboring counties is a big part of this, kind of establishing what can be done in those areas. This also provides an opportunity for tapping into new sources of financing. So the first and largest proposal of its kind to the Clean Water State Revolving Fund was made by Hayes County about a year ago. It's a slow process to determine whether that might be feasible, but they've requested a $30 million loan from the Clean Water State Revolving Fund. This would be a very low interest rate loan. It's lower than you can get on the market. Typically, I think the rate right now may be 0%. I don't really understand how that works. But in addition to that $30 million, if it can be secured, if you can lower the interest rate on $30 million out of a bond, well, you've you've saved the voters some money in the process and you've made that um, bond go even further as a result. Some of that money could be forgiven, what they call loan forgiveness, really a form of grant as well. So there, you know, we're also looking at that as a as an opportunity with the Clean Water State Revolving Fund, and then um, uh, even possibly we may be able to tap into um, flood infrastructure dollars. So, uh, of course, FEMA and different um, you know, emergency. Uh, there's a, an emergency agency here in Texas that deals with flooding and whatnot, and um, Together, they've established these funds that you can tap into to do watershed protection, to protect floodplain areas, to do buyouts, things like that. And that's another way that we could leverage this particular program. It's possible. It's going to be hard, but we're exploring at least for the time being to see whether we might be able to leverage the $75 million in bond dollars with um, with an additional another $75 million, maybe $100 million or more uh, through flood infrastructure dollars. So you know, there, there's there's a lot that can be, um, this is potentially a springboard for even bigger things in the future. And of course, there's a lot of tough questions to answer in order to, to expand on this, but it's certainly worth exploring in the process. Sounds great. Anything else to add about just the overall project or any other thoughts that didn't come out? I think that was a great point made by Frank uh, on those uh, state dollars. Uh, he was right; those interest rates are close to zero, and you know, out on the market right now, the county has a, a very strong, uh, you know, financial standing and bond rating. But we'd probably be selling debt somewhere in the two, you know, two percent uh, range right now, uh, which is extremely low and, and historically extremely low. Uh, however, getting close to zero percent, like Frank said, would save our taxpayers millions of dollars in debt service, which is which is huge. And that's why we're working on that issue and took a lot of help to get uh, that proposal done. It's very complicated, but excited about that, excited about finding ways to grow that. And then, you know, Frank's mention of, of flood planning, the state has taken uh, some really, you know, really huge steps um, in flood planning. Uh, I'm not going to say solely because of Hurricane Harvey, but uh, a decent amount, I think, came from Hurricane Harvey, the devastation. Uh, 
that happened from that. Uh, we've seen flooding in Hayes County many times. 2015, we lost uh, multiple uh, lives in a flood of the Blanco River that uh, came down through Blanco, Wimberley, and into San Marcos. Still actually have a few of those that we haven't found yet, uh, including children. So it was extremely important to this area. And I think the state has uh, paid attention to that and understands there's more to flood management than just infrastructure that it's actually a true floodplain management that's required and conservation can be a, a huge part of that uh, limiting impervious cover near these floodplains. Uh, so uh, very excited about what the state's done. They put uh, that uh, planning efforts together uh, last session. In fact, we just started organizing those floodplain regions, uh, which the state statute calls for. We've been doing it for, uh, for water supplies for years. This will be the first time it's done for planning. Uh, the count, Hayes County is actually in two, and we, we are that way in many different ways. We have two uh, two river um, basins that, that come through the county, uh, one in the north, the lower Colorado, and then to the south, the uh, the Blanco, Guadalupe Blanco area. Uh, and uh, I was fortunate enough to get on our Region 11 uh, flood planning group, and so I'm very much looking forward to seeing how some of the things we've talked about today can apply to the funding that the state is uh, starting to put together for flood planning. And make those arguments not just for infrastructure, which uh, in areas like the city of San Marcos are extremely important, um, but also general conservation and floodplain management strategies uh, that could utilize some of those funds as well. So we're looking forward to that. I think that's a great step the state of Texas um, has taken, and hopefully it's, uh, it will turn out to, uh, to really help some of these hill country counties. Sounds like you guys are really leading the way with uh, a, lot, a lot of more projects generating just from what you started with. Frank, can you please tell me a little bit about the role of the Hill Country Conservancy and how you would distinguish it from Hill Country as well? Sure. So the Hill Country, of course, describes this this region of 17 or 18 counties. It's a, a quite large area. And so there's lots of folks who have adopted the name Hill Country as, as part of their namesake for good reason. We have a lot of pride in the, the Texas Hill Country. Hill Country Conservancy is a nonprofit land trust, and we're widely recognized as a facilitator of, of complex conservation programs and projects. Um, we see our role as really lifting all boats um, so that collectively more conservation can be accomplished. We believe with more financing available, with greater awareness of the need for conservation, that anybody that's proposing to do more conservation is benefited by our efforts. In addition to that, a big part of what Hill Country Conservancy is aiming to accomplish is to develop replicable models for conserving these natural resources like water, wildlife, scenic views, you know, all of these things that benefit from land conservation. The idea that if we can identify things that are successful and can be accomplished in one place, then we could spread these models into other areas and accomplish similar success in those areas as well. We, we do all this by working with diverse partners. We work closely with public agencies, as folks can tell from listening to this. We work with real estate and engineering. We don't tend to stand in opposition to projects. We focus on working with willing uh, partners and supporters. And of course, we work with a lot of nonprofit partners along the way. We've been a big part of helping to get local bonds passed. Oftentimes, if there's a Local bond, uh, we've played some part in getting that on the ballot, whether it be through polling or through general education. Typically, we play uh, a really integral part in engaging our local officials to put those bonds on the ballot. Um, and that's resulted in hundreds of millions of dollars for land and watershed protection that we can't take credit for by ourselves by any means, but we have played a part in, in, in pursuing those things and, and we're always there at the table. 
We're also a leader in accessing existing and new funding sources. So the Farm Bill is probably the biggest national funding source for land protection. We've tapped into those funds successfully on an annual basis and are showing folks how to do that as well. The Clean Water State Revolving Fund is something that's I think there's $450 million available in low interest rate loans throughout Texas each year. And typically that funding has been used for gray infrastructure projects like pipes and wastewater projects. But there is the opportunity to tap into that for, for watershed protection. And we've been pursuing that as a leader as well. And then we work closely with this uh, with the Texas Hill Country Conservation Network, which is a you know, collaboration of more than 40 different groups that are doing things like working on a source water protection financing program. Finally, we've been the beneficiary of a, an award through the Regional Conservation Partnership Program. This is something that came from the USDA. Uh, it's about $5 million that we're using uh, with another 20 partners involved to help private landowners to do private land stewardship and uh, watershed protection. And um, finally, there's the Violet Crown Trail. So we've been really focused on providing some recreational opportunities as well so that folks can really uh, see tangibly and get on the land and see exactly what it is that we're that we're doing in our conservation efforts. Yeah, and Leslie, I'd like to just kind of add to what uh, Frank said about uh, the conservancy. There's, it would be hard to uh, for me to list all of the projects that they've been involved in just in our area that if it wasn't for them, we probably wouldn't have. They have always been willing to take the lead um, and help us when it comes to that. We have some really amazing projects that have that really started with uh, the Conservancy and their leadership uh, and their ability to provide us with the, uh, the necessary education and resources to understand uh, the importance of these projects. So, I, you know, I've always appreciated uh, Frank and uh, George Kofer um, and the whole team uh, there at the Conservancy over the years for for the work that they've done um, here across the Hill Country, but specifically in Hayes County, um, I would consider that uh, I probably wouldn't uh, be able to uh, to do what I do in this in this area if it wasn't for them and the help that they've provided us. So I, I really want to just say how much I appreciate uh, everything that they do um, in this area. That's good to hear. Thank you. I'll just ask you one more question, Frank. What does the term ecosystem services mean to you? Sure. Um, so that that is a term that comes up in uh, in academic papers and sometimes uh it's usually wonks who say it so i'm not i'm not that much in favor of it although i do certainly understand appreciate what it's what it's getting at i'm nowadays more inclined to talk about the benefits of nature and so if you if you say benefits of nature nobody has to stop and think what is an ecosystem or why do i care uh, there's very few people who would say they don't care about what nature provides and nature provides um so much that we don't even recognize it's just constantly producing benefits for us and you know some of the more obvious benefits are water um, so when we turn on our tap well that that water has to come from somewhere it falls on some piece of land somewhere way out in the country that we don't think about and then eventually makes its way down into a creek or onto a into a cave and then sinks into the local groundwater supply and then it's eventually provided by your local supplier to your tap and um, so we're really relying on that particular benefit of nature. Uh, of course, wildlife is uh, a, a good example of a benefit of nature, just whether that be the recreational opportunities that come about from hunting and bird watching and hiking, um, in addition to fishing and swimming, all those things. Um, just knowing that that wildlife is out there and enjoying it is a benefit. Um, 
Also, clean air is a good example of a of a benefit of nature. Uh, the um, you know trees and, and vegetation are constantly pulling carbon dioxide from the air, pulling different pollutants out of the air, so that we have clean air to breathe and to to deal with um, with climate change as well uh, through carbon sequestration. Flood mitigation is a huge benefit of nature, uh, particularly here in, here in the hill country. Uh, folks who know the hill country know that we are flash flood alley. Uh, it's one of the uh, most flood-prone areas uh, within the country and perhaps the world. And so to have uh, areas that are vegetated, um, where the water can slowly uh, drain across the surface, slowly infiltrate that ground surface, and then make its way into the creeks and streams in a more sustained way, rather than flashing and flooding across the landscape, is a really critical component of, um, of the benefits of nature. I mentioned recreation, but also I think as part of recreation, something folks know intuitively, but we don't talk about enough, is that there are real psychological and emotional and spiritual benefits that arise from nature. Um, I've had to learn this for myself over time. I grew up in a suburb of Dallas, and um, as I was growing up, the, the fact that it used to all be farmland was not really evident to me. So when I came to Austin for college, um, I was really struck by all the green space all around us. And um, I really kind of found myself, I found my footing, I found my grounding out in the Barton Creek Greenbelt outside of Austin. And I noticed that when I left Austin, I drove west and uh, or south and went to places like Driftwood in Hayes County or Dripping Springs or Hay in Hayes County or Wimberley. Um, what I found is I was just much more relaxed. I was, I was happier. It was uh, everything kind of slowed down for me mentally and emotionally. And and I'm a spiritual person. I, I, I have a lot of faith that I rely upon and I feel closer to God when I go outside. Um, so there's there's immense benefits that arise from nature. And um, I, I think that we can't talk about them too much because it's it's really the center of our world if we understand it truly. Very true. It's not an easy concept to tackle necessarily. I'm going to bring Philip Covington into the conversation now. He's the Special Projects Manager for the City of San Antonio's Edwards Aquifer Protection Program. Can you please tell me a little bit about San Antonio and its water and a little bit about the background surrounding this project? Sure. So just to start out, uh, San Antonio is the seventh largest city in the United States, and we are experiencing some of the fastest growth in the country currently. We have about 2.3 million residents that live in the San Antonio metropolitan area. And we're expected to gain about another million by 2040. So lots of planning in the works associated with, you know, infrastructure as well as water resources as well. We're one of the few uh, cities in the country that relies on a karst or a limestone aquifer. So the water is actually clean and requires very little treatment before it, you know, comes out into the taps. So we're primarily very interested in making sure that that water remains a clean source of drinking water. And the Edwards Aquifer, which is our water source, is our primary source of drinking water. But our water system, which is San Antonio Water Systems, doing a really good job of trying to secure a diversified portfolio of other water sources, but the Edwards is going to remain our primary water source. 
So that's where this program comes in. It's you know very critically important that we protect our Edwards Aquifer since it is our primary source of drinking water. And so the Edwards Aquifer Protection Program, which I manage, or the EAPP, as I'll re- refer to through the remaining uh, remainder of this podcast, is to protect the quality and the quantity of Edwards Aquifer recharge through the purchase of these properties and perpetual conservation easements over the recharge and contributing zones, both here in Bear County, where San Antonio is located, as well as our surrounding counties. That's quite a project. And how did this effort get started initially? Well, the sales tax funding for uh, the EAPP initially was approved by voters back in 2000. The effort really goes way further back. In fact, the efforts can be traced back to the Aquifer Protection Association back in the mid-1970s, which was campaigning to purchase and protect a very large swath of land over the recharge zone here in Bear County as a result of all the rapid residential and commercial development over um, the recharge zone, which is an area that contains many, many sensitive recharge features. So back around 1976, then uh, current Congressman Henry B. Gonzalez introduced a bill to Congress to purchase land over that recharge zone here in Bear County for about $76 million. A large group of developers lobbied against the bill, and they were eventually successful in stopping that effort, which is kind of unfortunate because $76 million to purchase that much land now would probably equate to several billion now in today's dollars. So it's unfortunate that it didn't get traction at that time. But fortunately, in 2000, as a result of you know stakeholder groups and city leadership, we were able to, to get this program approved and placed on the ballot for voter approval of uh, sales tax funding. And this program, while it you know ultimately is geared to protect recharge quality and quantity, we do have other measures in place here. First, the EPA deemed the Edwards Aquifer as a sole source aquifer, which is great because that triggers review of any federally funded development projects over the recharge zone to make sure that there's no potential for contamination over the recharge zone. And then locally, the city also has an aquifer protection ordinance, which governs the amount of impervious cover that will be permitted for new development over the recharge zone. But this takes a little bit further in that we're actually either acquiring property or we're acquiring conservation easements to protect the quality and the quantity of that recharge in perpetuity. And you mentioned sole source. Can you define that for those of us not familiar with that? Sole source, in other words, it's our primary source of drinking water. So we want to make sure that sole source of drinking water, although now we're diversifying our water portfolio, it's going to remain the majority source of our water. So we want to make sure it's always protected. And you mentioned a few groups who are involved in pushing this forward. Would you say the um, initiative came from the community and stakeholder groups or from the city or both? I think it was really both. I think initially there was a grassroots effort to protect the aquifer from the explosive development that was occurring on the north side of San Antonio. But ultimately, um, this effort was championed by then-Councilwoman Bonnie Connor and also our then-Mayor Howard Peak, and they were able to get this recommendation on the ballot for uh, as a proposition for sales tax funding back in 2000. So when it was a proposition on the ballot, that meant that the citizens of San Antonio had to vote to enact it. That is correct. What was public opinion like around this topic? You mentioned stakeholders, but then for the general public, were they aware of it or supportive? 
You know, I think it was a mixed bag initially. Um, while the initial proposition in 2000 received uh, 55% voter approval, there were folks that, you know, felt like it was a waste of money and we were ultimately going to be buying land that would never be developed anyway. So I'm, I'm sure the development community wasn't happy about the possibility of, um, you know, losing valuable land for conservation efforts. But I also, you know, would add that our program can't pay more than market value for property and conservation easements. So I wouldn't necessarily say that the EAPP posed a significant threat to developers in terms of an acquisition foot race as they generally have much deeper pockets than we do. So that being said, we do work with many sellers that are conservation minded and ultimately they'd prefer to see their property protected in perpetuity for protection of the aquifer versus seeing their property sold to a developer, having um, their children or an heir decide to sell their property for development in the future. And do you know about how many acres have been protected through this program? To date, we have protected 163,114 acres. Wow, that's impressive. So you mentioned taxes um, as a funding model. And why did your group or why did the government choose taxes directly? Collection of um, sales tax for our program, it's just historically been proven to be a clean, efficient way to fund the Aquifer Protection Program without placing a burden on the city's general fund. The collection's approved in five-year increments, so it's not subject to changes or reallocation of funds by changes in the city's administration. So in a way, it offered some guarantees and stability for the program that if we had been funded through the general fund, it could have been subject um, to you know, reappropriation of funds or many more changes to the, the way the program is run. Did you have to have it voted on every five years? It was approved in five-year increments. The first ballot was in 2000. It was then approved again in 2005, 2010, and 2015. Through those four propositions, we were approved for $325 million for aquifer protection. Excellent. And were there any challenges to using taxes for that model? Now, you mentioned the five-year increments, which could be a bonus or a challenge. I think the biggest challenge for us was just competing interests um, and initiatives for that sales tax funding. San Antonio's infrastructure um, needs have been a really hot topic in San Antonio, particularly recently. Our public transportation system, while it's efficient and it's effective, we really need significant improvements based on the amount of growth that we're seeing here in the community. And we've had light rail system being proposed several times in the past, and it's failed at the polls. And more recently, we had another call for major transportation improvements that was proposed as part of our 2040 transportation master plan called Connect SA. Um, because Bear County's reached the maximum sales tax rate allowed here by state law, approval of that transportation initiative was going to require identification of another uh, funding source for the EAPP. So it was obviously very controversial as there were, you know, many dignitaries in support of one effort or the other, or in many cases, they were supportive of both efforts. So it was just clear that both efforts, both initiatives needed to be funded. And ultimately, our mayor, Ron Nirenberg, was successful in his message to the public that both projects really needed to be funded and could be funded. We just needed to be creative in our approach. And then you mentioned that although you have been using taxes for a funding mechanism, that you've recently switch over to bonds or you're you are in the process of switching to bonds right so um, in the midst of that transportation funding push and looking how to fund the EAPP for a future cycle you know whether through sales tax or another funding mechanism then COVID-19 hit and the city and its citizens were hit extremely hard economically and socially so 
we were suddenly faced with over 100,000 residents that were suddenly out of work. And it just became clear that, you know, more community resources were going to be needed to help these families pick up the pieces. As a result, the proposition was proposed by council and ultimately approved by voters this past fall to create a long-term recovery program to assist these impacted residents with workforce training and higher education degree completion. Prior to that ballot being approved by voters, city leadership identified a 10-year, $100 million funding plan for the EAPP through the city's existing Municipal Facilities Corporation, and that was approved by City Council in September 2020, which will become effective in October 2023 when our current funding is exhausted. So the way the funding is going to work is that the city, through this Municipal Facilities Corporation, will issue debt through short-term commercial paper and through long-term fixed-rate debt, and in order to meet the requirements for issuing debt to fund this program. A portion of the revenue payment will come from our San Antonio water system, which we receive on an annual basis to help satisfy the payment and security of the debt. Excellent. When people pay for their water, they will help to pay back the, the bonds, essentially. It's, it's not going to be directly carried over to uh, ratepayers in the form of an increase. It's some, it's a source of revenue that the city was already receiving. And so it's just going to be reappropriated for this uh, particular program. And this program, you said, has been going on for about 20 years, or at least in its current iteration. What has been the public reaction as this project has evolved and the city has grown? You know, it's been really interesting. Voter support for the propositions have steadily increased over the years. In fact, in 2015, we received uh, 78 percent voter approval for, you know, continuation of the program through the uh, last funding cycle, which was $100 million over a five-year period. And just in my experience with the program, um, we've had overwhelming positive, you know, support when interacting with the public and educating them about the mission of the program. We've definitely seen our share of individuals ranging from citizens to newspaper columnists to public officials that, you know, initially didn't clearly understand our mission or just didn't agree with uh, the effort as a whole, but this last funding discussion really brought out supporters for the program. And in a way, it was really refreshing to see the passion of people and that appreciate our efforts and accomplishments over the past 20 years. You know, I think the stakeholders raised so much concern over the public stability and concern over an incoming, you know, council reappropriating funds for the program that they actually implemented a requirement that as part of this new funding plan that goes into effect in 2023, that a series of public hearings would actually have to occur in order for a future council to make any changes to this program or uh, to reappropriate funding. So that kind of added an additional layer of protection and reassurance for the public that the program is going to continue in its current um, form without any changes to administration or to its oversight. And again, to date, we protected over 163,000 acres through purchase of properties and acquisition of conservation easements. And we have many more projects in the queue. So we're looking forward to continuing the success of the program. That's interesting. So has the, have the administrations over the years, have they been supportive of it or have there been some administrations that were less supportive of the program? As a whole, the city council has been supportive of the program. We've had um, a few incoming council members that weren't necessarily fully educated on the purpose and mission of the program. So there was some, I guess, 
a little bit of skepticism on continuation of funding for a program that they didn't fully understand. But really, it's just part of an education process that I found both with new incoming leadership as well as with the public in general, just educating them on what we do, what we're about, and that ultimately we're um, trying to protect our primary water source, both for um, current residents and for future generations as well. So this podcast in general is also focused on ecosystem services. And so we are asking all of our guests, what the term, what does the term ecosystem services mean to you? Uh, without sounding like a, a dictionary defi- or definition, I mean, I, I ultimately see it as just everything in nature that benefits us from all of the ecosystems. So it's everything from pollination to food production, natural resources, energy protection, water and air purification, and then also just the cultural side of it, the spiritual education and recreational needs and ultimately our well-being, what we need to survive. Interesting. Is there anything else you'd like to add about this project? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to just share a little bit about the Edwards Aquifer Protection Program through the city of San Antonio. And I'm always happy to hear from other organizations that are seeking um, to create similar conservation programs. So to the listeners of this podcast, I would certainly encourage you to not hesitate to reach out to me if there's anything I can do to assist in answering questions or provide advice. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Leslie. It was great to be with you. Thanks to Philip, Frank, and Lon for sharing their Texas-sized story. This is Leslie Bobby of Southern Regional Extension Forestry on behalf of Keeping Forests, a diverse coalition conserving the natural, economic, and cultural value of Southern forests. Music in the podcast is provided by Chuck Lavelle. I want to thank everyone for tuning into How the River Flows. Join us next time as we explore the connections between healthy forests and clean water and see how others have built a partnership that benefits all. You can listen to How the River Flows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Carlton Owen.